many of the jobs that I've taken, they were not looking for someone to join, right? But you kind of have to create your own opportunities. Minette, our president, likes to say, you lose nothing by asking. So I guess if you can imagine something, if there's something that you want, at the very least, try to have a conversation and see if you can make it happen. And if it doesn't happen, that's okay. You're kind of right back where you started. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build a future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Acevil helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Acevil, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Joanne, really excited to have you on the show. Uh, we crossed paths so many years ago in the impact investing and social enterprise space, and now here we are in venture capital. Please introduce yourself real quick. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So hello, my name is Joanne. I'm Vice President for Investments at Kickstart Ventures. Kickstart is a corporate venture capital firm based in the Philippines, affiliated with Globe Telecom and Ayala Corporation. So Kickstart manages roughly $250 million across three funds, and we invest globally, but with an eye towards bringing innovation into the Philippines using the platform of Globe Telecom and Ayala Corporation, and also uh, spurring Philippine startups and, and, and growth by investing in the local market. So how did you first get interested and into the investing space? Pretty much by accident. I kind of started out also accidentally in finance. I actually thought I would be in marketing, but I completely bombed my Procter & Gamble interview. That is another story. And kind of landed in investment banking. Did a couple of internships with Credit Suisse and UBS here in the Philippines and pretty much thought I was going to have kind of a career in investment banking until the global financial crisis hit just as I was graduating from college. And that led to a detour, actually. I had always been interested in social impact and pretty much thought after making all my money in investment banking, I would go forth and start giving it away to people. But fate intervened. And I kind of took a detour to search in the microfinance space. And as I was kind of having conversations with people in microfinance, that is kind of when I got in touch with a group called LGT, Venture Philanthropy. 
which is, I guess, how we first met also. And LGT was really focused on supporting early stage social enterprises. And so pretty much by accident, I found my way to, to this group and was introduced to this world of supporting early stage companies, providing them with the financial capital that they needed to grow, but also advice, access to networks. And that was how kind of my investing journey sort of began. Amazing. Well, I have to ask then, how did you bomb your PNG interview? <laughs> um, they, they like to ask these questions about name a time when you blank, right? Showed leadership, I don't know, solved a difficult problem, things like this. And uh, there's a certain format of questions. And to be honest, I was not used to interviewing this way. I guess my style back then and even till now has been always a bit more organic and conversational. And I didn't have kind of a nice story in a box prepared for, for such a line of questioning and just couldn't completely express myself. And so that was the story of bombing my PNG interview. <laughs> <laughs> just didn't have it in a box, Jeremy. <laughs> well, you know, in the same vein of openness, I also bombed an interview, I remember, in undergrad because I wrote, and I was pretty decent at a point of time in terms of like written Chinese Mandarin. Mm. So obviously I wrote, I was like, I don't know, I can't remember. I didn't write advanced. I wrote like, like, okay in Mandarin, right? And then, of course, I was applying for a role in China for some internship. And so we did half the interview. I was doing great. And then they were like, please explain the Chinese economy in Chinese. And I was like, flunked it. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> Arduous. I mean, I knew exactly what I needed to say, but I think it was a good reminder for me to realize that I was conversational in like conversational Mandarin, but business Mandarin, like talking about economy, interest rates, inflation were all terms that... Um, that is a so, whole other language. Yeah, it was a whole different language. So I went home and I deleted the phrase <laughs> intermediate Mandarin <laughs> and just deleted it. I was just like... For all intents conversational. And purposes, no, I didn't even put conversational. I, don't, I, just, I was like... No Mandarin. <laughs> I mean, I, I can definitely, you know, order food and hang out and talk at the bar, but anyway. Don't ask you about the Chinese economy. I got no, it. No, no, no. You know, there you are, obviously. You've, now you're doing impact investing. And what's interesting is that we had a transition from impact investing into startup investing. That is true. Uh, and we have both laughed about this as well. So, so I mean, what, before we talk about it, like, what, what was the key points that you learned from the transition, I guess? I mean... Early stage companies is early stage companies, I guess, right? Like when I spoke to the president of Kickstart, Minette, she was asking me to join Kickstart back in 2016. I had just come out of government at, at that point. And I was saying to Minette, Minette, I've spent kind of six years investing in early stage social enterprises, but I'm not as familiar with tech and I'm not as familiar with kind of venture fundraising jargon, right? I, I did not know what a seed or series A or all these letters were about, ESOP, none of that, right? But Minette said, I, I, I have faith that, that, that you'll learn it. And the principles are, are kind of really the same. And you know what? She was kind of right, right? I think when you look at kind of early stage companies, regardless of whether they operate in social impact or in startup land, they kind of have the same issues, right? Like 
they have a vision or a goal that they want to get to. For social enterprises, maybe it's number of lives touched, right? For for VC for for VC backed or, or startup companies, maybe it's a certain revenue or or number of users metric, right? But they start with a dream, and it's like, how do we get there? So, a lot of the things that I did to help uh, those social enterprises turned out to be quite useful still <clears throat> in Ventureland, whether it was helping them come up with their financial models and plans, thinking about who they needed to hire to grow the company, trying to figure out what business model they were going to follow, whether it was going to be B2B or B2C or what the right pricing would be, right? So kind of the fundamentals of building a business, mm. regardless of what sector you're in, mm. kind of remain the same. And those skills and experiences I found to be quite like transferable. There's just new jargon that you lay over those same things. As you transition into that, what would you say are some myths or misconceptions that people have about venture capital investing? Misconceptions about venture capital. This doesn't quite answer your point, but I think the the, the closest thing I have kind of in my memory back about like VC versus social impact, being in this Having seen both sides, venture capital, venture philanthropy, or impact investing, very often I think people get confused about the kind of capital they they want to fund their business. And you know, I kind of make the distinction between whether you call it a social enterprise, a small and beautiful business, a lifestyle business, right? There's many names for it, right? But there's companies that actually don't need to scale that much or don't want to scale that much, right? They they have other vectors that they're optimizing for. And the challenge is actually when they take venture funding to hit those goals. And then, of course, venture will push you in a direction to grow, to scale, to expand, and then kind of those founders are put in this tough position where it's like, actually, that's not, I didn't want to grow that much, right? So I think just being clear about how far you want to take a company and then finding the right, the right partners to, to get you on your way there is, is probably one of my key kind of insights from, from, from having seen uh, both sides. And what's interesting is that during that transition, you also moved from a regional role to focusing mm. on the Philippines as a market. So obviously, you're Filipino, you're working in the Philippines. What were some transitions or learnings that you had? Because I think it's one thing to grow up, for example, myself in Singapore versus Singapore as a market, right? So how do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. So with, with LGT, I was based in the Philippines, but I covered Southeast Asia, I had a bus route. I would travel two or three times a year, Manila, Jakarta, Hanoi, Singapore, go around Thailand. And it's interesting, actually, like, you, I saw these countries kind of all rising up around the same time, right? In 2009 to 2000, I don't know, 14, till when I was at LGT, like, you, you could really see the growth that was bubbling 
for 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 each of these countries. I think if anything, that regional role kind of showed me in some ways the similarities that 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 these markets had in terms of generally like demographics and the emerging middle class. So for me, like yeah, there 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 were kind of a lot of similarities, I suppose, between these emerging emerging countries. Differences, uh, I mean, for some, right, like the form of government was 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 a bit different. But but I don't know, like I guess I'm rambling. But like overall, like the LGT stint kind of ma- made me see more that, that that Southeast Asia as a region was kind of on the cusp of 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 breaking out, um, and it was it was great to see. Moving kind of to Kickstart, right, and and uh, a role that focuses more on the Philippine market. I mean, as you said, you know, I'm I'm Filipino, and you know, as much as I, I super enjoyed the role at LGT and making friends all across Southeast Asia, there was also something kind of meaningful to me about getting to focus more on this market, on on, on the Philippines, and trying to help the local startup ecosystem get off the ground. If you'll allow me to kind of regress a bit, like my my role just before joining Kickstart was actually with the Philippine government. And maybe that really planted the seeds. Like in the Philippine government, I, I reported to the Minister of Trade and I had talked to the minister about the potential that I saw in tech and startups. I could see what was happening in Singapore, all the startup incentive plans that were being developed in Malaysia, early unicorns starting to form right, or be developed in Indonesia. And I said, I think the Philippines mm. has kind of a role to play in all of this, right? I, I think that we are a viable market, right, for, for tech and this kind of disruption. And so one of the things that I worked on when I was in the Department of Trade was a white paper to describe to the Philippine government how they might create policies and programs to support tech startup development in in the country. And because it was an election year in 2016, my white paper was put in a cabinet somewhere and I think forgotten for the next five years. Wait, was it ever published? It it got turned into a law. Okay, I mean, I'm sure there were many steps, but yeah. but some of the the early suggestions I made, you know, around startup visas, around incentive plans, things like this, you know, I, I I shared them right with the minister, with some senators, lawmakers at the time, and those suggestions made their way into a startup act, Philippine Startup Act, that was turned into a law in, in 2021, I think. But six years, it, it took six years, right? And so I, I did not have this kind of patience. And I guess kind of bouncing off from that, like Kickstart gave me a platform or was the way that I could then continue that work, right, from from the government to try to support the, the local ecosystem. Hmm. And... So speaking about the Philippines as an ecosystem, we've both commiserated, right, that the Philippines does feel like 
number four or number five out of the top six countries in ASEAN, yeah. right? And you know, I, I met a U.S. family office, and he was like, you know, landed. He's like, okay, I understand Singapore. Don't talk to me about it. Tell me about Indonesia and Vietnam, and then that yes. was the rest of the dinner, right? Uh, so we never covered the Philippines or Thailand or Malaysia. So how do you feel about that? I mean, obviously, Indonesia, you, you can't talk about Southeast Asia without talking about Indonesia, just from the size, the sheer size of the market, as well as all the unicorns that they spawned. Vietnam has been obviously a super fast growing economy and a highly educated population. So quite a lot also that's developing mm. there. I think the Philippines was off to a slow start. So from 2016, when I joined Kickstarter to 2018, 2019, there wasn't so much going on, to be honest, right? Like you had, of course, the big guys. You had Lazada, you had Shopee, you had Gcash and Paymaya, kind of investing in the market. But apart from the big players, you didn't see so many homegrown companies really getting to scale, right? And I think that perception, right, has, mm. has plagued the market. But I guess what has changed over the past, I would say, three years in our country is, honestly, in 2020, when COVID hit, the Philippines had one of the hardest lockdowns in the region, right? And whether or not you wanted to go online, suddenly there was no choice, right? And that was everything from your groceries to how you attended school. Everything had to make a very hard transition to online. The statistic that I like to use to mm, demonstrate, I guess, how drastic the transition has been. At the end of 2019, Gcash, which is the mobile wallet that is under kind of globe, Gcash had about 20 million users. As of February 2023, like if you kind of check online now, Gcash has about 76 million users, right? So that is kind of a three and a half X, a little more, right? Almost 4X growth in the number of Filipinos who are online and, and transacting. We have a population of about 110 million. We're number two in Southeast Asia. And over the past three years, basically 70% of the population has found their way online, right? To, to pay, to transact. And that's why, right, since 2021, We've really increased like the number of um, investments that we've made in the local market that are kind of B2C opportunities, right? We've seen more homegrown companies, whether it's in kind of direct like B2C or even like B2B, like working with what we call Sari Sari stores or Wairongs. Like there's just been a lot more activity and, and opportunity. And I think we've also seen more international investors take note of that, right? The likes of General Atlantic or KKR. But like we have so many more kind of investors making investments for the first time. We've seen more local 
funds get set up. And I think that kind of increase in sources of capital, like domestic and international, is also encouraging more startups to to get off the ground. So I guess when I speak with investors who actually come to the Philippines and, and fly down here, they're excited by the consumer opportunity in particular. And I guess believe the Philippines is, how do I put it, like more reasonably valued compared to perhaps markets where there's obviously like a lot of demand already like in Indonesia. In an earlier episode on Brave, you know, we had uh, Mark from Gentry as well as Shiyan from Hasafan. We discussed, I think, the bull factors for the Philippines market as well as the bear factors. One aspect that there was a general perception that we felt was from external was about brain drain, right? So it's kind of relative as well, because it feels like a lot of countries in Southeast Asia are actually benefiting from an inflow from sea turtles of talent returning from the US or China, returning to Singapore, to Indonesia, to Vietnam, and boosting that local entrepreneur pool. Conversely, it feels like there's been a long-standing perception, I think, of a brain drain for the Philippines. So what are your thoughts around this dynamic? Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, you, you can't deny, right? Or, or we have to like acknowledge that there is a large percentage of the Filipino population that lives and works abroad. I think kind of last statistic was maybe like 10% of our population, right? But I think you also kind of have to look at, I guess, like the industries where kind of the brain drain is is happening. I think most visibly for us on the ground, it's in the, the medical field, right? Nurses, doctors, caregivers, therapists. That's kind of one area. We also have a lot of like seafarers, like maritime workers is another big area where we export capital, sorry, human capital, what do you call it, service and caregiving in general, I think are also kind of big areas. But I would say kind of for white collar jobs, software kind of programming, um, general like business management, the attrition is not as uh, dramatic perhaps as people would would make it out to be or would assume it to be. And at the same time, right, like if Filipinos do leave, especially like kind of, I don't know, the white collar jobs, when they leave, usually it's a more kind of regional roles. So in any case, like it doesn't feel like we're losing them um, all that much, right? So they're based in Singapore, maybe looking at either Southeast Asia or even still covering the Philippines just from the regional hub. So I think for for the startup industry, we don't feel that brain drain as much. And mm. kind of to your point, we do have startup founders, people who join as, as kind of managers at uh, startups who either worked or were educated abroad and then are coming home and uh, looking kind of at ways to be part of the consumer opportunity that, that that we just talked about. So yeah, I guess there is there is brain drain, there is attrition, but we should look into kind of which particular verticals or sectors th- those are happening in. Yeah. 
One thing that has always struck me about the Filipino diaspora is actually how strong the sense of home is. And yes. I think a lot of folks are actually very positive and want to go home to the Philippines. It's just that they feel like the career opportunities doesn't really match up their skill set, right? So whether it's a product manager or data scientist or kind of like engineering leaders, a lot of folks don't feel like there's a ro role fit for them. How do you feel about that? I mean, I think it, it's, it's one of these chicken and egg problems, mm. of course. Yeah. But as more startups get built, the case becomes stronger and stronger for people to to come home. We invested recently in, in a company called Pickup Coffee, for example, and they're basically trying to be the copy kanangan of, of the Philippines. And, you know, I, I've met now two or three Filipinos, like studied abroad, you know, Ivy League backgrounds, but are, I guess, in a way intrigued by the opportunity to build kind of the next whatever iconic brand in the Philippines and are coming back. So to your point, I think people want to come home. They're just looking for a good reason to, to do so. And, and hopefully as more companies are started and scaled up, that, that provides that, that reason and that pull for folks to, to come home. Yeah. What's interesting, for example, is I know Camille Ang from Hive Health. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Harvard MBA and Harvard Kennedy School, double grad, building Hive Health, right? Which is about making health plans more accessible for small, medium enterprises, employers, and therefore cascading better health coverage for you know Filipinos and families, right? Yeah. It's really interesting to see, I think, this green shoots kind of like come out. And hopefully that's a great opportunity for lots of folks. Yeah. One interesting thing is that there's a lot of, you know, myths and misconceptions about the Philippines as well. Do you want to clarify any of them? What <laughs> bugs you the most when someone gets it wrong about the Philippines? <laughs> I mean, I think a perception that folks have is, is that the Philippines is, I guess, very much controlled by families and, and conglomerates. And uh, then it's very difficult for new ventures to start, to grow, to scale. I guess perhaps a, a controversial uh, view right, that I have is sometimes that preconceived notion itself is what stops people from trying. And I maybe can speak for, for, for myself as as Filipino growing up in the Philippines. I, I like to say like, I, I grew up in a place where all the bookstores were one brand. Like I grew up and there was pretty much just one brand of bookstore I could go to, right? All the drugstores mainly were one one brand, right? Malls, right? Kind of three brands, right? So so you grew up as, as, as a Filipino and, and you kind of associate um, certain category so strongly with a particular brand or a particular family that it, it, it somehow like on the back of your mind there's this programming that's like oh they seem too big to to topple over right too big to fight against I think we've seen kind of founders enter like the Philippine market and truthfully perhaps many of them are are not from the Philippines. 
And they come and they say, like, how come no one's ever tried to make this thing just a little bit better, right? One one example, I guess, that has come to mind, it's not one of our investments, but it's it's an investment of a, a PA fund here called Navigar. And it's a kind of discount grocery chain called Dali. And like with Dali, they're kind of reimagining, I guess, the, the grocery format, right? It's a bit smaller. They are reimagining the, the value chain. So some of their items are disruptively low price point, not too dissimilar from Pickup Coffee's own value proposition. And kind of it took, I guess, that, I don't know, like challenger mindset, right? That like, I feel like if I create something, if I start something, people will want to want to try that, right? And I think as more and more of these challenger brands come to the public eye and, and maybe achieve some scale, it won't feel as much like, oh, there's no room for new players and there's no room for, for innovation because I think the Filipino consumer um, is hungry for new experiences and there's room for 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 folks to to come and 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 try to build something that improves on what is currently here and on that note personally when have you been brave well most most recently i guess you know an example comes to mind when there was a founder you know and i really wanted to work with them and invest in their company but they told me, you know, hey, we're not raising, you know, don't need your money, et cetera. And I kind of invited them for coffee and said, listen, I've been getting kind of inbound offers to, to invest, right, in similar companies to you. But actually, I'd really rather invest in you, right? So is there a way? I know you said you weren't raising, but is there a way for us to make something happen? I've done that at, at, at different junctures of, of my life. Many of the jobs that I've taken were, they were not looking for someone to join, right? But you kind of have to create your own opportunities. Minette, our president, likes to say, you lose nothing by asking. So I guess if you can imagine something, if there's something that you want, at the very least, try to have a conversation and see if you can make it happen. And if it doesn't happen, that's okay. You're kind of right back where you started. Wow, that's a really good story. And what does it mean to lose nothing by asking from your perspective? If you started off in a position where you didn't have this investment or you didn't have this job, the worst thing that could happen, right, is if you go have a conversation with a founder, you go have a conversation with a potential employer, someone you want to work for, and say like, hey, can I invest in your company? Hey, can I work for you? The worst thing they can say is like, not right now, right? We're, we're not looking for someone. But you would be no worse off, I guess, right? But the potential upside from asking is theoretically infinite. So at the very least, you can give it a shot. Personally, I find it easy to ask on behalf of someone else. But... Mm. To ask on behalf of myself, I find it harder, right? Why, why, do you, why do you think people find it hard to ask for themselves? 
I mean, I guess there's maybe this feeling, right, that you're not worthy, right? Like, why would they, why would they hire me, right? I guess that's, I guess a lot of people is like they make judgments or decisions about themselves, and then, and then those end up limiting what what they what what they do before before they even try. So that's certainly a lesson that. I still kind of have to learn. I don't always succeed, right, in 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 uh, practicing what I what I preach. I, I I always wanted to apply to B school, for example, but I was so afraid that they were going to say no, so I never did. Right. So, and and that's the flip side of what I just said, right? That's a time when when I wasn't brave. Like I let my fear of not getting something get in the way of of even trying out for it and i didn't give whoever it was harvard etc right the chance to even look at my profile and decide whether they wanted me or not because i decided that it wasn't good enough yeah well thanks for sharing that i think the fear is real right i mean there's no easy way to say it i like what you said about not feeling worthy what has worked for you personally in terms of, I don't know, improving the sense of worthiness or is it the solution just like feel unworthy, but make it less friction to ask, you know, you know, how, no, how I, do you help that? I love this. I love this line of questioning. I think, I don't know to what extent our, our Asian backgrounds <laughs> plays in all of this, right? It's like, <laughs> where's you come home with a 95. It's like, where's the other five? I mean, I think, at least for me, again, speaking for myself, maybe, right? It's like you grow up with kind of this inner inner critic and this, this inner voice that says, Hey, you're you're not you're not good enough or you don't measure up, right? And actually for many for many Asian kids, again, certainly myself, you end up treating that voice inside your head kind of like your friend. Like it it helps, right? It it it, it isn't completely negative because it's what drives you, right? Like I think many of us are 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 driven by wanting to to do better, to do better, to do better, and maybe then we'll be loved. But at some point, it becomes counterproductive because you could have achieved so much already in your life, um, and by all accounts, should be a lot happier. That voice inside your head's like always pushing you to do more, to do more, to do more, and and I think, for me anyway, there, there came a point when it was affecting like how I was towards other people, right? That like I was too hard on my partner or my my sibling, whatever, because the, the, you have to like get on my level, whatever, right? I hold you to this standard, etc. But not respecting that people each are on their own journey, right? And and you have to meet them where they are and support them where they are. So anyway, going back, I think for me what works is realizing that do I do I talk to myself the way I would talk to my best friend, right? Like if your best friend is having a bad day, your best friend failed at whatever, right? You're like trying to be encouraging, like, hey, it's all right, right? Like try again, etc. But you screw up. 
and the voice inside your head is just like you idiot like why did you too many expletives i cannot say right but we're very hard on ourselves mm-hmm. and that internal monologue ends up hurting us and hurting other people and and i think for me that's what i've been practicing more is like learning to talk to myself with love and kindness and you see that then pay dividends in your relationship with other people and hopefully also in the chances you allow yourself to take because you're not so afraid of failing. Thank you so much for sharing. That was a wonderful personal note to wrap things up. I'd love to kind of summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. The first is, of course, thank you so much for sharing your journey from investing accidentally as a career to impact investing where you were doing the regional bus routes across other various economies to kickstart VC, where you're helping build the Filipino startup ecosystem. I thought it was very interesting to hear also a bit of your stint at the government, uh, as well as what you learned about the various markets and how you felt happy, right, to be back home building the local ecosystem. I also enjoyed the second point about the Philippine startup perception versus reality. I think you covered a lot of that, actually. You discussed... And we debated a little bit about the perception of brain drain, but also a little bit more about reality by industry. And I think obviously the return of the diaspora to help build out the ecosystem. We also talk about whether there's sufficient space to innovate in the space of families and conglomerates. So I think it was interesting to hear that from your perspective, it's straightforward and doable to continue building, whether you are a local founder or international founder. And of course, it was interesting to hear your statistics around acceleration due to the pandemic and some of the key dynamics that happen in the ecosystem. Lastly, thanks so much for sharing about the phrase, lose nothing by asking. I thought it was a wonderful, I think, reflection, even for myself, about our voice that we have ourselves versus the voice that we have for our colleagues and friends. And I think I really pin it down on like being able to do the ask versus your own uh, feeling of self-worthiness, right, relative to the other person. So I thought that was, um, you know, something that I probably have to remind myself probably an hour later, I guess, after this. So thank you so much for sharing, Joanne. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.